WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Every once in a while, a book comes across your desk that the minute you see it, you know you have to talk about it. Such a book is called Scoundrel, and the author is joining us on City Talk, Sarah Weinman. Sarah, first of all, congratulations on a super book. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And now, to help our audience out here, talk about the beginning of this book. It, it's about an event that occurred over 60 years ago. How did you get involved in writing a book about what we're going to talk about? Well, yes, the event in question is the 1957 murder of 15-year-old Victoria Zielinski in Bergen County, New Jersey, which for those who are not familiar, Bergen County is just across the George Washington Bridge and the Hudson River from New York City. In fact, where I'm coming from today is Washington Heights, which is in upper Manhattan, and the GWB is like right there. So Bergen County feels very close to where I am, even if it is kind of another world. And certainly the world of 1957 is very different than it is in 2023. I first heard about this story some years ago. I had finished an article that eventually became the basis for my first book, The Real Lolita. And I had known about a similar story involving the murderer in question, Edgar Smith, and the conservative pundit, advocate, writer, gadfly, who eventually advocated for his innocence, that being William F. Buckley Jr. And I learned about it because there was a similar story involving the writer Norman Mailer and how he befriended and advocated for a writer in prison named Jack Henry Abbott. And the way that that devolved in which Abbott secured his release, he wrote a book uh, that collected his prison writings and eventually went back to prison after the bar fight murder of another man on the very day that his book got a rave review from the New York Times. So somehow that story got a lot of attention and press, but the one involving Edgar Smith and his murder of a teenage girl and Buckley's advocacy somehow just didn't get enough traction at the time. And I thought, this is curious, I wanna know more. So I started what I thought was going to be an article and soon realized that there was so much material that it really was already a book. And something else curious happened where certain people involved in the story, namely some of the women and peripheral people whom Edgar had known and harmed and was, and in one instance, uh, very nearly killed, they just weren't responding to my entreaties. And I realized that I would kind of have to wait. So I worked on The Real Lolita. I worked on some other projects. Fast forward to 2017, and I learn of Edgar Smith's death at the age of 83. And I realized, okay, now certain people who might have been reluctant to speak will be a little more forthcoming because they don't have to worry that he's going to, oh, I don't know, stalk them from prison or send them harassing letters or just generally be a nuisance in a way that they felt fearful of. So that was kind of the impetus for how I ended up on the project, though I did not devote myself full-time to what became Scoundrel until the end of 2018, early 2019. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> it's a great one. How did how did they eventually track down Smith? Well, what do you mean? 
I mean, well, there are many ways in which he was, I suppose, tracked down. He, he, he was found guilty, but, but what led to his uh, arrest and conviction? So the initial arrest for the murder of Victoria Zelinsky happened quite quickly. He was 23 at the time, and he had known Vicky socially. A friend of his named Don Hamel had dated her a few times. They ran in similar circles. But Eddie, as he was known then, was married and had a very recently born baby named Patty Ann. His wife was Patricia. And at the time of Vicky's murder, Edgar had lost another job. He was kind of shiftless. He had been in the Marines and washed out. There was some some degree of mental instability that meant that uh, he couldn't continue to serve. And he ended up back in Mawa and Ramsey. And at the time of the murder, he was living in a trailer park and his daughter was just three months old. So again, he doesn't have a job. There's a lot of stress and pressure at home. And one night in March of 1957, Victoria arranges to go to the house of her friend and work on some homework. So she and her younger sister, Myrna, arrange it so that they walk halfway together. Myrna goes home. Vicky goes to her friend's house. And then when the sort of homework date is over, they will do the reverse, meet up in the middle, and then walk back. And somewhere along the way, as Myrna is walking towards the arranged meeting spot, Vicky isn't there. And she doesn't know what to do. She goes to the house. They say Vicky left. So Myrna goes home, gets her parents involved. They call the police. And eventually they find uh, some hours later, Vicky's parents, as particularly her father, finds Vicky's body uh, down an embankment. Her head has been completely crushed. Um, there's some sign of, you know, viol- further violence. And it's, it's, it's an awful, awful scene. But within 24 hours, the police have a suspect because... Edgar had driven a car and at one point he comes home and he says he has to like change his clothes because he has his pants are soaked and a friend who's driving his car the next day realizes that there's blood under the seat. So there is a lot of physical and circumstantial evidence that ties Edgar to the crime. So he's interrogated at length. He is arrested. There's a trial. It's covered quite plentifully and frequently in the New Jersey press, in the New York press, nationally. He's convicted. He's sentenced to death. And then that begins the odyssey for Edgar Smith to do everything and anything possible to prevent his being executed. Back then, things were a lot different than they are today if you're arrested. And one of the things that happened, which eventually came back to if you'll pardon the expression, bite the police in the you know where, Mm -hmm. was the fact that he did not have a lawyer and was not asked if he wanted one. And they they were eventually able to prove that his constitutional rights had been violated. I mean, that's the, that's sort of the hell of the story, is that on the one hand, it is very clear that Edgar Smith killed Victoria Zelinsky. And at certain parts in the story, he would either deny it outright, admit to it, deny it again, go back and forth. But the circumstantial evidence in particular is quite clear. There's no one else who could have done this. He did try to pin the blame on Don Hamel, which was a terrible thing to do. But the police 
we're acting in a way that did not accord with what we think of as typical police interrogations. Certainly just a few years later, there'd be the Miranda decision that codified that you have the right to remain silent and that you're supposed to tell anyone who's being interrogated of their rights. You didn't know if you were being interrogated, say, in the 50s, that you did have a right to a lawyer that would be um, enshrined in the Supreme Court in a different decision in the early 60s. So in 1957, the police could kind of do whatever they want. And as a result, they would behave in ways that, frankly, did le- should have led to a new trial. So as I was working on Scoundrel and reading the trial transcript and Edgar's account of things in the book that he would eventually write called Breed Against Death, and William F. Buckley's various accounts, particularly in the piece he wrote in 1965 in Esquire, but also even later for a piece he wrote for Life magazine in 1979, as well as other accounts, there's absolutely convincing case that Edgar's conviction should have been overturned and they should have redone the trial and thrown out what he said under duress to the police. But unfortunately, it doesn't take away from the fact that he did, in fact, commit the crime. As I think we now know, we often have a lot of wrongful conviction stories. I was calling this one a wrongful conviction in reverse or even a wrongful exoneration. But I think if we look at the mechanics, the deeper issue is that the way that the criminal legal system is done, particularly in the United States, if we sort of pull the thread a little bit, we'll realize how many of these convictions actually probably shouldn't stand up and how many guilty verdicts should be overturned. And to grapple with that enormity, I think, is just too much for society to handle. So we don't. The the conviction came rather quickly uh, in at least two hours or less for for the uh, the murder of Victoria, and she and of course he was sentenced to death, and as you pointed out, wrote a book. Now, obvious question. This is how I first heard about it by reading *Brief Against Death*. But how did he manage to do it and get it out of out of the death house in prison? Well, first, let me backtrack and say that there was a point, I believe, in 1958 when Edgar Smith was just about a half an hour away from being executed. And I remember as I was researching and writing that that chapter, I really felt almost breathless, like, oh my God, how is he going to avoid being executed? Because you had these stays of execution and a flurry of hearings in state and federal court. I mean, it really felt like very suspenseful and nerve wracking. And at the time, his first wife, Pat, was still sticking by him. So there really was this sense of, an inju- a great injustice is about to be done. We're about to execute someone who shouldn't be executed. Even if much of Bergen County believed he was guilty, there were still a number of people who did believe in Edgar's innocence or at least believe that he should have had a new trial. So as I mentioned earlier, this was when he kind of decided he was going to do whatever it took to live. So he took correspondence courses. He started you know, just trying to read more and educate himself. And that's how he got on the radar of William F. Buckley Jr., who had founded National Review and was really starting to make a name for himself as a syndicated columnist and sort of a architect of what we now define as the modern conservative movement. And so Edgar gave this interview to a friendly interviewer, someone who had been his high school gym teacher, 
in which he mentioned that there was somebody in the prison system, like a chaplain, who had brought these magazines. One of them was the Nas- was National Review. And then the chaplain got moved, so he didn't have access anymore. And Buckley alighted on this and, and promised to send him National Review copies, essentially, for life. There was a, a piece by a different correspondent first, but then Edgar and Bill started this cor- uh, correspondence of their own. And so it was only after Buckley's piece in Esquire on the case of Edgar H. Smith Jr. After that was published, a number of people wrote in letters. One of them was a book editor named Sophie Wilkins. She was working at Knopf. And she is what I think of as the heart and soul of Scoundrel because she was someone who had emigrated to the United States. She was Jewish. She was cosmopolitan. She knew Lionel Trilling because she had worked with him. She had a, you know, she was working on a PhD that she didn't end up finishing. She had multiple husbands. At the time, she was caring for her third husband who had severe mental health issues and her sons were away at college. She was very, very lonely and also very frustrated at work because the projects she wanted to work on were just not coming to fruition. So she wrote Buckley and said, I read your article. I'm very interested in Edgar's quotes. Do you think that uh, he might be interested in writing a book? And if so, you know, I, I would like to know about it. It took a couple of years, but eventually Edgar did tell Buckley he was working on a book, the one that became Brief Against Death. And that is how he and Sophie got connected. She started to write him. And at first, this was a correspondence that was strictly business, strictly between an editor and an author. And that was what I thought when I first went into Sophie's archives at Columbia University some years ago. And to my shock and surprise, I realized that the correspondence between Sophie and Edgar became something far more than that uh, of a professional nature between author and editor. 14 years in prison, he eventually got out. Yes. How did he, how did he get out? Well, after this whole epistolary romance type relationship with Sophie, which she would later claim was what she felt it would take to midwife this birth this book into existence but all through 1967 and 68 they you know work on this he'll eventually freak out sometimes that he wasn't getting his way but eventually there is a finished book and it is called brief against death and its central argument is that edgar smith is innocent that he did not kill victoria Zelensky, that here are all the ways in which justice was railroaded against him And it was eventually published in the fall of 1968. Buckley wrote an introduction. He would appear on various television programs, including The Tonight Show, to promote it because, of course, Edgar was on death row. And he had no no real other access to the outside world beyond letters and occasional visits from those that the New Jersey State Prison granted permission, those including Buckley, who got on his legal team, and Sophie, who was pretending to be a quote cousin. So these are the ways in which they got around the rules. And in fact, one of the rules they got around was his writing the book at all. And the reason he could get away with it is that any correspondence that was done through lawyers was not checked by the censors. So there were no page restrictions. There were no content restrictions. And thus this this manuscript could be written and smuggled out. And that's exactly what happened. And Knopf published it. 
and it was a moderate success. And certainly the uh, response to it was split. You had some people like the crime writer Ross McDonald giving a favorable review in the New York Times saying, well, after this, I'm you know not sure what to think, but I feel very strongly that he's made a, he's trying to make a good case for his innocence. And then other people, especially in Bergen County, who are just like, this guy's guilty as hell. But concurrent with the publication of Brief Against Death, his appeals are making his way up the courts. And eventually the Supreme Court does say, yeah, there's a problem with the interrogation. At the very least, it should be remanded and the lower court should look at it. It takes some years, but eventually New Jersey lower court does decide that Edgar needs a new trial. So by the end of 1971, his legal team strikes a deal for him to plead guilty to second degree murder and essentially to get time served. Because at that point, in December of 1971, Edgar is the longest serving prisoner on death row anywhere in the United States, which is amazing to think about now when countless people have been on death row for 30 years, even more. But in 1971, it was unheard of to be on death row for 14 years and nine months, as Edgar was. Okay, so he gets out of jail. But in the meantime, backtrack a little further. Tell us what happened or what was happening in Edgar's life and family, and also that of Victoria Zelinsky's. Well, let me start with Vicky's family, because it turned out that she grew up in a pretty volatile situation of her own. Her her father was very abusive. He was an alcoholic. Eventually, her mother and her father would divorce, and her mother would allege quite some quite astonishing things in the divorce complaint, although none of it was proven. Um, Vicky's mother had an accident at one point where I believe she lost a couple of fingers, but then eventually um, her mother and her surviving siblings moved out to California and her father stayed in Bergen County. So as a result, when all of this stuff was happening with Edgar's appeals, with the publication of the book, with him becoming sort of a celebrity of sorts, it was Vicky's father who was more accessible and more willing to talk to the press than would Vicky's mother or siblings. So his voice kind of became more prominent than, frankly, I think it should have. In addition, Edgar's first wife, Pat, finally decided to leave him in the early 1960s. She married someone else, moved out of state, and raised their daughter. And she didn't even know until her teens who her actual biological father was. But at that point, you know, she was trying to be raised in what was hoped to be a fairly normal, idyllic existence that had nothing to do with her father, her bio dad being on death row. And as for Edgar, I mean, he was, you know, corresponding with people, be it about legal issues, be it women who profess some kind of interest or uh, romantic or otherwise in him. And by the time he got out, he had quite a number of supporters. And for some time, he was hobnobbing in highbrow New York-based literary circles. He would attend criminal justice hearings. He also wrote additional books. He wrote a novel while he was in prison on death row. And he worked on another nonfiction book that would be published after he got out. But eventually, the good times were starting to wane. He did meet someone significantly younger who became his second wife. They moved out west. And the old pattern started to assert himself as he wrote in a letter to Buckley 
1975, which I'm going to paraphrase, that essentially he felt that history was repeating himself. He was isolated. He was um, having trouble getting work. His wife was supporting him. And he felt that essentially all the old demons were starting to roar back. And boy, did they ever. Okay. Um, tell us what what some of them were. Keep going. This is getting this is getting good. Well, I think it's been good the whole time, frankly, but uh, okay. <laughs> well, by 1976, Edgar's prospects really were not looking good. He thought that he was going to make it as a writer. His next nonfiction book, Getting Out, had not done well at all. Buckley hadn't even liked it and told people this. And his second wife was going to school, but she was also working. And there was just some other weirdness, maybe involving drug running and being a layabout. So all the old demons were coming back. He felt that old familiar rage. He didn't, that he wasn't earning enough money, that he felt essentially emasculated. And so one day in 1970, in 1976, Edgar takes the car and is looking essentially to do harm. And he ends up at a shopping mall and he sees a, a woman whom he has never met before and who does not know him as she exits work and he kidnaps her. He takes her in the car and she struggles valiantly and she's stabbed in the process, but she manages to get the steering wheel and pull, you know, get the car to pull over. Other people are milled around. There are other cars. Edgar, she gets out of the car. She sort of tumbles out from the passenger seat and then Edgar's, Edgar drives off and he's a fugitive for a while and people don't know where he is. Is he in California? Turns out he goes to New York. He hits up an editor that he once worked with for money and a place to stay. He meets with relatives. He claims that he goes to Victoria Zelinsky's grave so he can make amends. I'm, I was never able to verify that part. And eventually he ends up in Las Vegas and calls Buckley's office at the National Review. And Buckley's secretary, Frances Bronson, picks up. And she has to kind of improvise and say, oh, no, Buckley's on an engagement in Albuquerque. He was not. But once she hangs up the phone, Edgar had said where he was. And she calls Buckley, tells him the details, and Buckley calls the FBI. And not long after, Edgar, who is in this hotel under an assumed name, is arrested. And eventually he will be convicted of the attempted murder of Lisa Osborn, the woman he, he kidnapped and came very close to killing. And he would spend the rest of his life in prison. But he also he got married again. I mentioned that, yes. And then he and he, and he married a third time. In fact, yeah, that's the one I mean. Yes, uh, she he... is. She is deceased. I don't really mention her much in Scoundrel, not because she wasn't an interesting figure, but because the narrative really mostly ends once Edgar is convicted and sent back to prison. And frankly, the last forty years of his life could be compressed pretty quickly. He tried to use the system to get a lesser sentence or or not be convicted, did he not? Yes, he tried to claim that he had intended to rape Lisa Osborne. And California law weirdly had it at the time that if rape was the underlying factor of attempted murder or murder, that you would get a lesser sentence than, say, robbery. So it was deemed pretty quickly that this was a ruse. And the prosecutor at the time 
saw through it and said so in front of the judge. And the judge wasn't buying it either. But Edgar gave a pretty impassioned speech where he said he was a mentally disordered sex offender and he needed help. And that's when he publicly admitted to killing Victoria Zelinsky. But what was interesting is that later on when he was in prison, he would go back and forth. Well, maybe I'm not a mentally disordered sex offender. Maybe I'm this, maybe I'm that. And oh, by the way, I didn't actually kill her. And he told his daughter and granddaughter, they asked him straight up, did you kill Vicky Zelinsky? And he said, no. So clearly this was not somebody who understood real remorse or really cared. He told his brother the same thing. Yes, that's right. He had a brother, Richard, and Richard asked him and he said no. Yep. So it's interesting that those closest to him, family members, he would never tell them the real truth. And how were the family members agreeable to, to, was it hard to get them to talk to you? Well, Richard wasn't alive by the time I was working on Scoundrel. And certainly Edgar's mother, Anne, who is a pretty important figure in all of this, I should point out. I mean, she really believed in her son's innocence. She worked so hard to get him good legal representation. She was the one who introduced Sophie Wilkins to Edgar because Sophie had written Anne first. And she was a real force. And Buckley in particular felt very sorry for her and kept corresponding on occasion and getting Christmas cards. And then as he told Sophie in a letter some years later, he knew that Anne had probably passed away when he stopped getting any kind of Christmas cards from her. And she did die, in fact, in the late 90s. She lived to be in her, I think, early 90s. So I wasn't able to talk to her, but I was able to track down Edgar's daughter, Patty Ann, or or Patricia, and um, her own daughter, Jennifer, Edgar's granddaughter. And those were really meaningful interviews because they gave me some insight into just the way that Edgar was operating, but also their own personalities. Like Patty was so matter of fact and so not even blasé, but just when Edgar died and the prison asked if she wanted any of his effects, she just said, no, <laughs> not really. She just, she, she saw him for what he was. And that was it. There was no love and there was no sentimental attachment. It was just, okay. Yeah. This guy birthed me and fine. It was actually kind of remarkable. Like, I really enjoyed talking to her, frankly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but but while he was still on the loose before he went to, uh, was arrested, he still, I mean, he stole somebody's credit cards and a car and everything else. So he was, he was pretty active. Oh, he was pretty crafty. Yes. That was the uh, aforementioned editor that I mentioned. Um, he had the editor had said that he could stay at his apartment and Edgar took greater liberties than that. Yeah. Yeah. He sure did. Um, uh, you also discuss in your book, another case at the, at the end of the book, after you talk with the daughter and granddaughter about something that happened earlier than the murder of Victoria Zelinsky. That's right. It was uh, when Edgar was 14 and this girl who, her name was Kathy. Obviously, I don't identify her beyond her first name. She is deceased as well. But when Kathy was nine, she encountered 14-year-old Edgar and he wanted her to commit a sex act. And she fought him off and ran home and he was arrested and given some juvenile punishment. 
And it kind of ruined her life. I mean, she described much of that cha- that coda is drawn from a 2000 statement that Kathy gave. And she described how she had this trauma that lasted her entire life. It affected how she raised her own daughter. It affected how she saw her sons. And this is not something you get over because it was a horrible, traumatizing thing that happened to her when she was just nine years old. It was just about to be her birthday. And I wanted, I, I, I wrote about that at the end because I wanted people to see that the seeds of Edgar Smith's behavior started quite young. And yes, I'm sure that there were mitigating circumstances, but it was far more important to me to show that he inflicted so much harm on so many women and girls, and that this was the pattern that underlie, underlay everything that he did in his life. Yeah. Now, as I told you before, I got in touch with Smith when I was still working at, at WBZ in Boston. And yes, I talked to him for a long time before we did anything on the air. And I was convinced, as William F. Buckley was, and probably a lot of other people, that this guy did not do what he was accused of. And I had him on the air one night for two hours. <laughs> and somebody wrote me a letter from Virginia telling me what a gripping interview it was. And I can't tell you the ribbing that I got when we found out that he really did murder Victoria Zelensky and 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 what he did to this lady in San Diego. So he he duped a lot of people, me being one of them. He certainly did. I mean, you weren't the only one. You was on Studs Terkel show talking about the memoir getting out. And Studs certainly took um a pretty measured approach in his interview with Edgar. But I think that the question of innocence was a real one and a lot of people believed it. And I read Brief Against Death a number of times while I was researching Scoundrel and writing it. And I have to say the way it is written, it is very seductive. It is very, is pretty convincing. I mean, mm-hmm. I saw through a lot of it, but if you didn't know anything about the story, the way that he wrote it and the, facts that he presented, if you just took it at face value, it could be a convincing case for innocence. It's just that for those who knew what had happened and were around during the first trial and who knew what Edgar had left out, and the person I'm thinking of specifically was Ronald Khaleesi, who was the son of the prosecutor, Guy Khaleesi, who prosecuted Edgar in 1957. Ron attended the trial when he was 10 years old, which is also kind of mind boggling. <laughs> but he idolized his father and liked to see him at work. And this was the biggest case in Bergen County in some time. And Ron just never let it go. So in 1972, not long after Edgar is released, he compiles the full trial transcript and some of the appeals and crime scene photos, and puts it all together in this massive book that's like 1,100 pages long called Counterpoint. The idea being this is a counterpoint to Edgar's professed innocence, and anybody who wants to know the full story needs to see the totality of it. And I found Counterpoint uh, very helpful because it collected the full trial transcript, of course, but also it contained an essay that Ron wrote 
talking about attending the trial when he was young and his family and why it was such a travesty that Edgar seemed to get away with it. And when I spoke with him in 2015, this was about a year and a half before he died, you know, he he still wasn't letting it go. This was the central case of his life. Yeah, uh, I, I, I would say so. Um, I'm also curious, too, as to, um, um, well, I'm not really sure. I, what about the after effects of the policemen that were involved in the what turned out to be illegal interrogation? How bad, if at all, were they damaged? I don't think they were that damaged at all. Like there was one who I believe testified at the uh, at the hearing that would eventually lead to Edgar's conviction being fully overturned. And he had gone to Florida and he just sort of seemed to shrug it off. Like, I just don't think, you know, we see this now that cops think they do their job to the best of their ability. And if they get it wrong, they get it wrong. And they often have to just move on to the next thing because there's so much. And, you know, they felt they had done what they were supposed to do to ensure an arrest. That arrest led to a conviction, led to, in Edgar's case, a death sentence. Okay, that didn't happen, but these things happen. And I think, you know, the vast majority of these cops thought he was guilty as hell. So if anything, they were probably kind of annoyed or maybe even upset to have this essentially relitigated in court. But in terms of how it affected the rest of their lives, I, I really couldn't say. Um, you were able to correspond somewhat too with Smith himself. That was early on in my research and reporting, yes. And I obviously I wrote about that at the end because chronologically that's when it happened and it would have been at the end of 2014. Yeah. And by that point, I'd already done enough research and reporting to have heard multiple versions from Edgar, including like parole hearings where he had to talk about it in front of the parole board. Because in California, you uh, prisoners would often go before the parole board every couple of years. So there was quite a paper trail of this. And there were so many different versions. And the one that I alighted on is being as close to the truth when they uh, the parole board asked him why he killed Vicky. And he said, I was angry. And the truth is, I think that's the closest to the truth. So I felt in my own uh, brief correspondence with him that asking that question was not going to garner much in the way of, of a meaningful response. You know, did I hope that I would meet him in person? Well, kind of. Uh, if that was a possibility, then I would have made it happen. But it was pretty clear from the early correspondence that he was kind of trying to manipulate me and I didn't like that. So I felt like, okay, I have this one shot to ask him some questions, so I'm going to do that. And I figured I probably wouldn't hear from him. But he wrote me back again and was very affronted and annoyed that I asked certain questions and claimed that he wasn't going to answer them and then proceeded to answer every single one of them. <laughs> so I felt like all I was doing was giving Edgar Smith attention that he desperately wanted because no one was giving him attention anymore. He was an old man. He had a lot of health problems. Frankly, I'm amazed that he lived as long as he did, considering all of those health problems, mostly involving his heart and diabetes and this and that. Couldn't walk. But he still had his mind. And he was still able to do a lot with that mind from prison 
in terms of the connections that he made and the people who, uh, particularly his second ex-wife, whom he was able to continue to cause harm, even remotely. And that's what I thought about as I corresponded with him. Pick a couple minutes as you as you do in your book, and for those who are not familiar with it uh, at all, uh, talk about the death house, what what it was like in there for 14 years. It, it seemed that he got treated pretty well. I mean, he was treated about as well as anybody could have been in that situation, because if you were a prisoner in New Jersey State's death house, you only were out allowed outside of your cell one hour a day. So that's 23 hours of essentially solitary confinement. You got out for an hour a day. You were only allowed to shower once a week for maybe 10 minutes. And there just wasn't much opportunity to do much else. So with so much time at his disposal and so much solitude, he turned to reading and then eventually he turned to writing because these, you know, he was really, really bored. And sometimes there'd be TV on and they were able to watch it from their cells. And sometimes the prisoners were able to kind of yell at one another to be in conversation. But it wasn't as if genuine friendships were ever formed because everybody knew that tomorrow could, today could be their last day, that anybody could get executed. And at least two, if not more, men were executed while Edgar was on death row. So that was always ever present. It, I mean, if we look at basic human rights, I think that many of them would have straight up been violated. And eventually they would be moved to a different prison and restrictions would be relaxed a little bit. But it wasn't great. Yeah, he, he got his cell moved, did he not? Yes, that's right. At one point? Yes. But he wasn't the only one. I mean, all of them got got their cells moved in the late 1960s. So what's next on the horizon for Sarah Weinman? I mean, I did just recently publish an anthology that I edited of uh, true crime writing with a social justice bent. And that anthology is called Evidence of Things Seen, True Crime in an Era of Reckoning. It's published by Echo, which is part of HarperCollins, which has published both of my nonfiction books and an earlier anthology called Unspeakable Acts. And then what I'm working on next is a book about the first nationally uh, covered spousal rape trial, which took place in Salem, Oregon in late 1978, involving a woman named Greta and her then husband, John Rideout. And that case became a huge media circus and I think really illuminates attitudes about social issues and feminism and bodily autonomy. And once again, it feels like a subject that is both timeless and timely. So that's what I'm working on now. Yeah, you know, two things that I just remembered. One was, and I was in school at the time, when a gentleman named Carol Chessman yes. was on death row in California. And the night of his execution, if I remember correctly, the only reason he was executed was because somebody dialed a wrong number to postpone it. That's correct. I thought a lot about Chessman as I was working on this project too. And Edgar sometimes referenced him in letters and uh, 
other correspondents. I wonder how he got his book. My dad, I can remember my dad reading one of them, the red light bandit. Um, right. That was, was, that was what he yeah. was referred to. Yep. And he was still able to do, uh, to do it in prison. He, there was a sympathetic warden and I believe there was also some degree of uh, subterfuge in terms of getting the manuscript out. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you for a, a super interview. You are tremendous to talk to. Thank you. I appreciate um, it. You are, as they say, an interviewer's dream. Um, again, congratulations on a great book. It's nice to know that I'm not the only one who thought that <laughs> Smith was innocent uh, after all of that. No, and, and that's also why I wanted to write this book, to kind of examine how somebody like Edgar Smith could manipulate and dupe so many people who wanted to approach this in good faith. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. The, I wonder what would happen if that same thing happened today, as far as, as he would be concerned and having, having able to have lawyers and all that kind of thing. I wonder how it would have, if it all made things different. I mean, the main difference is technology that, you know, if you have DNA, it might be more convincing in showing that he was guilty or not. But on the other hand, if the interrogation by the police happened in the same way, it probably would have been inadmissible. So it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. I do feel like this project, ultimately, I view it as a tragedy. I view it as inevitable. I think that most of the decisions would have happened the way that they happened. And that doesn't, that's, very little comfort for anybody. But as a result, it was sort of incumbent upon me to just tell the story as it was and not try to, you know, over editorialize. Is there is there anything you would like to say in in closing before we wrap up this fantastic interview? Well, I think it's interesting that obviously the book is called Scoundrel, and we can't not talk about Edgar Smith. But to me, he's the least important person in this narrative because Again, I wanted to probe what it was to believe in somebody like this, to be manipulated, to be harmed, to be duped. So I wanted to kind of create this sense of all the people in his orbit who were most affected by him and what were their stories and who were they. And I felt like between William F. Buckley and Sophie Wilkins and Patricia Horton, his first wife, and Paige Heimeyer, his second wife, his daughter, his granddaughter, other women that he dated or knew peripherally, and frankly, readers who bought Brief Against Death and really thought that he did not kill Victoria Zelensky. And also, let's not forget Donald Hamel, who was accused in open court as being the killer. And frankly, that was slander. That was patently untrue. And it ruined his life, too. So a lot of lives were ruined because of Edgar Smith. And, and that's what I want to get the, the main takeaway to be is that he caused a lot of harm in his life. And that doesn't make up for the fact that he could write. And that, you know, to quote Donald Cox, who was the National Review correspondent who first wrote about Edgar, when I asked him straight up, what, why did this happen? He said, we never believed that somebody who could write so well could be a savage killer. Well, again, uh, it's a great book. It is a page turner. Once you start reading it, you ain't going to be able to put it down. 
<laughs> and uh, it, it's just a great manuscript, and I'm I'm really glad that you wrote it. Thank you. I'm I I really appreciate that you said that because I'm quite proud of how it turned out. As as you should be. So, thank you for appearing on this edition of City Talk, and also my thanks to to Dwayne Steele, who also helped in the preparation of this broadcast. And that'll do it. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.